To ship, of course. Build Engineering DevOps and Release Management. It's the Ship Show. I'm your host, Paul Reed, Sober Build Engine on Twitter and at SoberBuildEngineer.com. And who's with me this evening? This is Sasha. Sasha B at Twitter. This is Seth at Cheesebox on Twitter. How's, how was your guys' January? It's already February. That went fast. Mine was good. Quiet. Yeah, quiet. Quiet is good. Busy. Busy. Traveling. Lots of fun. Um, <laughs> I just uh, got back from Denver not too long ago and remembered what real cold feels like now. <laughs> please. Please. I don't even want to hear it from you guys. Yeah, it has been cold lately. Well, tonight we're going to be uh, talking about an often ignored topic, versioning. Uh, what does versioning mean in today's climate of web and cloud-based services? And we'll take a look at some best practices and look at whether or not versioning still even matters. That's up in this, the main segment this evening. But of course, first up, we, we're doing news and views. And this episode's uh, set of news and views are a little bit of schadenfreude, lots of security exploits and uh, sadness going on in the last couple of weeks. Ruby Gems uh, got hacked. That was a big deal over the la- over the last week. I saw the buzz about it on Twitter, but uh, I wasn't totally plugged into that. Sasha, you had been watching that more. Yes, it was correct? well because we actually keep a Ruby Gems mirror at my current client. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, so what I, happened? I that to be quite interesting. So there was a bug in Ruby. I don't really know if it's brand new this week or not because I don't pay that much a close attention to too much because it tends to be Ruby on Rails that gets most of the exploits. And it's the YAML serialization bug. And uh-huh. um, if you don't know what that is, it doesn't really matter. Somebody wrote a gem that basically would, if you installed it, it would go and pull your pull some secrets and put them out on a, a pasty on the internet. Ew. And they called it exploit, right? So they were doing it to make point. But what happened is that basically it made a mess of the Ruby gem site. And they had to shut it down, put it in the maintenance mode. And I don't have the whole story on why they moved infrastructures, but overnight they actually packed up and moved everything from Rackspace over to Amazon. And there was a community group of folks who who worked on it who pretty much chefed them overnight, moved them over, got them going. And then they were in maintenance mode for another day while they went through and verified all the gems and things like that. And as far as I know, they're back in push now uh, yesterday or today. Interesting. yeah, so I went into work the next day, and I was like, hey, guys, when was the last time we updated our mirror? And it turns out it was really funny. It looks like our mirror sink is broken and hasn't yeah. been updated since somebody ran it by hand in January. So One of those, one of those fortunate failures where you're like, oh, that worked <laughs> yeah, out. Yeah, wow. Like, <laughs> things are broken, but, oh, if they were running, things would have been worse. Right, yeah. So I fixed it and stuck a dry run on the end of the cron job, and, uh, yeah. Yeah. Deal with Interesting. It later. But yeah, it was really fascinating. The exciting part for me was the fact that they moved them overnight and yeah. um, they wrote all the automation for it like on the spot. Well, and so that's so. that's seems like that would be a good sort of gold standard about can you can you move your entire site overnight with automation? Uh, yeah, without any of it being it ahead of time. So rock yeah. on, guys. Yeah, definitely. That's interesting. On that note, GitHub added, or I guess re-enabled code search, and then they disabled it again because apparently people searched for ID underscore RSA and got a bunch of Amazon keys and SSH keys that people had checked into GitHub. So that was kind of interesting. I think made people take a look at what their .git ignores contain. So that I, love, an- I love when you, you actually look through some of them. There were things like don't put key here in the comments around it, and then the person actually putting the key in there. It was just like classic security right. fails and fails. Right. I, I looked at a few just just to just to do it, right. um, and it was it was kind of a, a series of, of errors, and uh, it was kind of funny. Well, so you know what I noticed today too is that somebody went immediately out and started looking for racial slurs and sexist stuff too, and wrote a blog post on that. And oh yeah, it's it a was little bad. more indignant than I thought it needed to be. Really? How so? 
there was a there's a, a saw a bunch of that out there, um, and it was kind of it was it was kind of ridiculous because it's like oh, you people realize your code is on the internet, right? People <laughs> well, people have the ability to search these things. I was just I'm so surprised. Well, I think that's the thing is that they for a long time they didn't have this code search enabled. I think because of performance reasons. Uh, and Seth, you and I were kind of laughing about this earlier. That uh, the the blog post we'll link to was like, yeah, we're we're shutting it down because it gets certain things wrong. And oh, conveniently, we've sort of had people self pwned because they checked this stuff in, and, and we were laughing about the fact that that seemed kind of coincidental. This reminds me, though, a lot of, if you guys remember, there was a blog post that Jamie Zawinski of Mozilla fame did where they had to go through and sanitize the code for the public Mozilla release, but then his blog post later had, like, all the cuss words and things in it. It's like, yeah. It's, I've, had it, to, I've had to do that before at, at an employer uh, yeah. where we're, we're beholden to some publisher, and so we had to go through the code and remove obscenities. It was it was very Escrow. fun. Yeah. Um, well, so you know what's funny? I, I actually had a meeting at a, a previous employer, and this was years ago, where we had to sit down and come up in the meeting uh, with all of the bad words that we were going to, because we had a script that searched the source code for it. <laughs> so I was like, okay, what? And it was just like the most HR horrific <laughs> fail meeting because it it's was like, like all right, all guys. The- can you come up with another one? It's like, nah, I think I'm out. I'm yeah, done. exactly. Yeah, and it was it was funny too because there were some words in there on the list that were like, ah, you'll never find this in the source base. And then you do a search and you're like, oh, okay. Oh. <laughs> this, that was a that was a dark time for that particular programmer. Yeah, or or it was uh, maybe a company that got acquired, a smaller company, and and oh, you know, God. Th- their HR standards are a little different than <laughs> standards. <laughs> standards. Yeah, exactly. What? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> And the last thing we wanted to point to, you know, maybe this is one of the first of the 2013 predictions from our previous show to maybe come true. Slashdot was reporting uh, a couple weeks ago about a Trojanized SSH daemon that was sending passwords to Iceland, of all places. Um, We'll link to it in the show notes, but I thought it was interesting. Just, you know, one of those things. Actually, I mean, with all of these examples, it seems like public key cryptography is certainly under attack, and it's one of those things that... uh, all organizations are going to have to start looking a little more closely at the management of that. Right, so I got up this morning, and, and was it this morning? It was, that, and they were like, hmm, Twitter got hacked. Oh, Change right. Password. Yep. I changed my password, and, and uh, also in the news this week was the New York Times talking about getting hacked and how they watched it for a while before they actually turned it off. Well, that's, I mean, that's a good position to be in when you're able to watch it. It's, you know, uh, somebody was posting with the Twitter hack. The way they handled it was a little... Um, Disappointing in so much as uh, my roommate, who's who doesn't work in the tech industry, actually asked me. I got this email from Twitter with a bunch of links, and I don't know, you know, is it a phishing attack or or what's going on? And so I think the messaging they did, you know, releasing the notice on a Friday, kind of did a disservice to a lot of users because they were there was just a lot of confusion around whether or not it was real. Oh, I got, yeah, I actually got the email, but I I haven't looked at it. But then an ex coworker of mine was was tweeting, and I actually retweeted this about they didn't release any details either about you know were the were the passwords hashed? What were they hashed with? Were they hashed with something that's weak? And so you should consider those passwords just totally useless now. So it reminds me of the um, Matt Honan, I think, who who had his his Google his Gmail account hacked and it was that hack that went through Amazon and Apple and was all weird and and he he's done a bunch of stories on that but he uh, did a story on we it's time to retire the password and so and it's kind of interesting with, with you know where the focus of these hacks have been yeah all right well next up versioning and versioning best practices next up on the show
right, well, welcome back to The Ship Show. I'm Paul Reed. So on the docket for this episode, versioning. It's an often under-discussed and seemingly under-loved topic. Uh, a lot of times people think versioning is kind of simple, a simple concept and, and uh, kind of boring, but we wanted to uh, look at it a little bit to see as we move towards web and cloud-based services, whether the concept of versioning changes. A lot of people like to use the cliched line when talking about versioning. People don't ask, what version of Facebook am I using? So there's sort of this question of, are we in a post-versioning world? And so we're going to take a look at that and look at also some best practices for versioning. So I wanted to start tonight actually asking you guys about that kind of cliche topic a lot. A lot of times uh, when the discussion of versioning comes up, that's always the line that people trot out. It's people say, whether it's Facebook or some other kind of web-based app, they'll say, people don't need to know what version uh, of Facebook they're using or, or it doesn't matter. Well, um, but Facebook knows. Facebook knows. <laughs> I mean, so <laughs> it ma- it I, don't understand, I don't understand this, like, your sentence doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> I, you're right. I don't care what version of Facebook I'm on, but I bet Probably, they know yeah. what feature flags I have enabled for me. Yeah, they, they know what version I'm looking at. They they internally like they've 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 got that pinned down. They know exactly. Um, sure. So so let me ask you this though. Would you agree versioning has changed and the concept of versioning has changed from back when you know we all used to go down to Best Buy or Walmart or whatever and get our box of software with our CD in it, or, or even download an ISO. Those have versions numbers in them. Has that changed? Do you think from no? From... Have you tried to install drivers for a video card for video games? <laughs> no, I think versions <laughs> matter a lot for that. Yeah, yeah. Versioning, versioning, and well, I don't know. I, the, from like from doing like game stuff, versioning has been the same for me for as long as it's ever it's ever been. I don't. I've not seen any. I've not seen it change a whole lot, except for the fact that we can push more patches. But that really hasn't influenced how I've ever versioned things. So let me take a second here, real quick, though, and and talk about context again, because I think that this is something that panels and and podcasts and things have trouble with, and that is the idea that we're talking about versions about different things here. One one of the things that you brought up was Facebook, mm-hmm. and that is not a versioned tool that we're using. That's a web page with stuff that we use. We don't need to know about versions for something like that. But then you have something where you are using a tool on your desktop or on your computer that needs to interact with other tools. That's different. I think that's very different, and I think that it's important that we talk. We have context when we talk about these things. Yeah, well, so that's actually a really interesting point because well, I think one of the great examples to point to the whole versioning debate was the Firefox versioning debate. And in that open source community, when they when they moved from a kind of traditional release model to a rapid release model to match Chrome's behavior, really, their version numbers used to be static for uh, half a year or a year. It would be Firefox 3.0 or Firefox 2.0 or whatever. And then it was the major version was changing every six weeks. And the interesting part of that discussion is he had a group of people who were basically beating the version numbers don't matter drum. And it's interesting because, especially as sort of a release engineer, that's one of the big things that we, one of the big initial parts of infrastructure that we put in place, uh, and in fact, I do that for a lot of clients where you go into an environment where we don't have build numbers or we don't have any sort of versioning scheme to, to talk about, right? Who well, doesn't have a build number? Well, it happens, right? You and so get made for you with your stuff. Yeah, no, so, so I mean, the thing is, is that it's interesting to talk about that claim that version numbers don't matter anymore. And I guess even, it's funny, you were talking about in the Facebook or web service example, to the extent to do 
users not care? And I actually think users do care. And so I don't know that I that I actually buy that argument that version numbers don't matter. Because even if you're using a, a web service like Facebook and you go and say, you know, and I've actually had this experience, like on the photo app in Facebook, like one of the buttons doesn't work, like the forward button doesn't work or whatever. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so how do you describe, how do you report that bug? It's funny, I was using another web service, a web-based service, and I was using Firefox, and I was t- chatting with a developer, and they were like, Oh yeah, we, you know we all use Chrome and we test on Chrome, so we don't we don't even know what version because we we just use Chrome and test on Chrome. And so well, I'm sure they, maybe they're they're the local visual testing, but I'm betting that they have lots of automated testing at Facebook. Oh, certainly, certainly. But I, my point was is that it seems to me, I guess the way that I would describe it is a lot of times versioning is one of the again one of those under love details, but it's kind of like how would we if we had to remove all proper nouns from our speech, the software and release engineering world, it's like that's the way you refer to the thing that you're using. That's right? how you know what so. code is there and how uh, whether or not it should interact with another collection of code yeah. at yeah. a certain level of, of I don't even know. I would never I don't even know why anybody would not have versions because I get why users don't need versions for things that they will never have to require to interact with other things. Whether or well, not you find that to be useful or not useful, um, that's that's a different thing than development teams and people developing product and versions too. So there's me, the user. I care about versions if things have to interact with each other. Maybe I don't, maybe I do if they don't have to interact with other things. But again, you're talking about end users and versions in one place and people shipping code and versions in another place. Well, so it's interesting. I wanted to talk about end users for a second because I think there's kind of a, actually one of the best practices that I've just learned, and we'll talk about that in a sec. But the one thing I did want to bring up is I, I see rumblings of this on Twitter, and I, I don't I don't claim to be an expert. I just see people talking about it on Twitter, and so be curious. I, I'd love to actually have our listeners kind of chime in on this. But it seems almost like every uh, generation learns this versioning lesson. Be- and the reason I uh, programmer generation, I say this because we were talking earlier in the show about Ruby gems, and I built some. I- I've supported some products that are based on Rails, and I remember one of the big problems was uh, dealing with versioning and versioning of modules in the Ruby community. Another one too was uh, the Node package manager recently. Um, I, in fact, I have a, a friend who's, who's uh, working on a Node-based product, and he was complaining about. In, I guess in Node, the versioning specification, the major revision number, minor revision number, micro revision number, you know, XYZ version numbers, actually are supposed to mean something in, the, in Node parlance. Uh, and somebody broke that because they had just wanted to change the version number. So what's interesting is it seems like we, we certainly learn these lessons with every language. And, and that's an example, you know, Sasha, you were talking about users, but I, I would say consumers of the, the product, whether it's a library, so that's going to be developers, or whether it's your iPhone and the version number, you know, people always talk about upgrading iOS 5 to iOS 6, you know, or whatever. Uh, it becomes important in that context, too. I think version numbers, I mean, I think the separation between what you're talking about with, with end users, because end users aren't the same as developers. Mm-hmm. If you're Just because you're, you're both classified under that consumer label, a developer is a consumer at a significantly higher technical capacity than your, than your average end user. Oh, um, c- certainly. No, no, no. My point was that I think the way that I would, I guess, express the, that statement is versioning is important for consumers of the product, whether it be end users or developers. And so certainly for like versions of modules, it, the consumers are going to be, people consuming that module are going to be developers. And you're right, you know, in that case, Facebook again is using some certain version of a module that does photo processing, right? I don't care about that as a user. 
But if we're talking about an end-user product, then as a consumer of that product, I'm going to care about the version number there. Yeah, you may. You may. I think, and I also think that so we were talking about earlier web pages not being version that didn't matter. And I've actually seen people where they do they put stamps on pages mm-hmm. so that if a consumer is looking at something and you know you've pushed a new deploy, they can say you can say, well, what version of the page do you look at? It's got like a little you know it's it's tiny text at the bottom. And you can see that, and they can tell that maybe like one of their CDNs isn't getting isn't getting their updates regularly. Oh right, or something that's like a, that. Yeah, um, that's a, and I've I've actually seen that used. And so I think even for consumers, uh, versioning can be a very useful troubleshooting tool. And that there's that it's so easy to do it that it doesn't. It, it seems like it would be a waste to not version everything. That's, I think that totally came across as the Perforce slogan. Too, I was right just going to say, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> hey, well, they're, they're, they're onto something. Yeah, but that's that's kind of how I feel. and that's So that's when I look at versioning. It's For me, I want very simple versioning. I want like major, minor, incremental, like forever. Right. I, I like products that keep the kind of same, like, you know what, is this product a 1.0 product? That's That helps me frame things, and I, I think that the, the well, version so- is just silly. That's so. That's a very interesting point, uh, and that was actually one of the things I wanted to talk about earlier that I was mentioning: version numbers and sort of the marketing implication of version numbers. One of the things that I so, so you know normally when I when I go in and help clients solve the versioning problem, one of the things we do we sit down is we 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 actually sit down and write a versioning spec, and I think that's actually important because to your point, Seth, it's super easy to to just increment version numbers and not have version numbers mean anything. You got to think about what they mean too. Exactly. Like, Exactly. Which, you know, you can't just be like, "All right, guys, we're just saying it's 1.0 today," because that that can mean. I mean, I know it sounds silly, but that can that can mean a whole lot to a, a lot of different people. Exactly, and you never right, right. know what it's going to mean. Right, and so you know, one of the things we do is we actually sit down and write up the spec. And one of the parts of that spec, and, and this is kind of interesting because it's a software spec, usually those interactions or those coming up with that spec involves the marketing people. And a lot of times, the reason for that is we. Car- I try to carve out a spot of the versioning spec that's for specifically for the marketing folks because sometimes on the business side of things, and this is where versioning actually gets really interesting because you, if you have uh, technical requirements of your version number, let's say your upgrade system works based on version numbers, but what if the marketing people come along and they say, well, we, we really, for revenue reasons, want to do a marketing splash. Uh, so we want the version that was supposed to be 1.2, we want that to be 2.0. But if, if you have a bunch of infrastructure that cares about versioning, then those sorts of things become more complicated to, to actually execute on. So that's actually one thing. It's funny, you were talking about 1.0 product. A lot of times I've actually seen marketing people jump over and release 1.1 because they don't want to have the 1.0 connotation, right? So sometimes you know you have to think about supporting that use case. And, and earlier I, I referenced Firefox, and that was one of the reasons that process was so painful to Firefox and users is because the extension ecosystem in Mozilla right. used version numbers. And when you started changing them every six weeks, you broke extensions yes. every six weeks. And yeah, and a lot of people that caused them to, to find a different web browser because they, they were constantly being broken. So just to go back a second, did you just say that you you made marketing their own little versioning bike shed? Pre- well, actually, yeah. So yes, <laughs> and actually what I mean by that is what we ended up doing in that particular case is the versioning strings and information for the product that were customer-facing, which was an XYZ version number, is per the spec totally controlled by marketing. They get to call it whatever they want. 
It can be, I think right now it's it's very low because they're still pulling the product together. But it's one of those numbers that like only marketing cares about, but then they can they can do whatever they want with it. Then there's another version number that the en- is totally engineering controlled and it is used for upgrades and it's also used to version the protocol between the different components of the system. And then all of that versioning information is actually separate from build number so that you can talk about a specific build, like I tested build 800 or this bug was in build 805 or whatever. And so for that, for that specific case, we actually divested all of those uses so that everybody could have their own little bike shed, as you said, to sort of play around. <laughs> Everyone has lots of meaningless version numbers. That's scary. But also, I see. I see why that makes sense for, yeah. for that particular situation. I've, I mean, I've. I usually just like, well, it's it's the Perforce changeless. That's the build number, and it will always be the build number. Yeah. I well, so like that's that. that's actually an interesting case because there's a lot of discussions. There's a lot of opinions on build numbers, and surprisingly so. And I've never understood. I generally, the way I've always done build numbers is there's a central repository that you get a build number. It's a monotonically increasing number, and that's it. And yeah. it's well, it, so there's a couple of things you see uh, people use. It. So the change list is not a bad one. It's just the thing about that is then um, you can have numbers in the middle that were never builds. So I mean, is that just something you know? In those cases, Seth, you just don't care about. That's fine. Or well, there's so the the you don't necessarily build all of those change lists, certainly. Right. But you, the it's it just reflects the snap the the point in time that the depot was at. Mm-hmm. So that's that's all it really means. So the the build is basically oh we snapshotted at this change list and that's whatever was in there at that snapshot is is part of that build. Right, um, right, right. But but so the build number though is still a different number, right? No, no. There's sometimes it was it was it was still one and the same. Um, okay. Is yeah. you just say you, you you just took whatever the the head changes. I've seen it done differently too. Right. So it's not to say that's the only way, but that's for me it was very convenient because you knew if you need to figure out what the build was, you just roll back to whatever at version number and mm-hmm. that was and then build it from there. And that's what if you had to just match that up against what you had in your you know artifact repository or your your build output stuff. Yeah, the reason I, I don't tend to do that is because uh, I don't like the... I want the... And this is, again, it's funny, and this is another reason I think people, I think, think versioning... You know, it's somewhat, it's one of those things that's sort of obvious until you start talking about it, and part of that is you can bike shed a lot of these things. I don't like doing that personally because then you don't have a constant number of, like, there was never... There could be... Actually, there probably are cases where there's not a build 800 but there's a build 801, and there's a build 805, but those numbers in the middle aren't used. And so the thing I don't like about that is you can sync the depot to revision 804, but that never represented an actual official build. But again, that's that's a me thing. You know, One of the things I've seen used, and, and this bit, the organization that was using it, is using the Unix uh, Epic... No, 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 sorry. It wasn't using the Unix Epic timestamp. It was just using a timestamp. So it was year, month, day hour and predictably you can see where this is going as yeah. more <laughs> builds came along they did more than one build a day that so then we added hour onto it and then it was oh well we're doing more more builds than one per hour so th- and then it finally came to its logical conclusion that now i think they encoded down to the millisecond and oh my god yeah exactly you're like what what well so maybe i don't get what you're talking about with builds because where i live right now, technically. I guess I don't really live there anymore. I just finished up. Where I was, we used Jenkins, 
Mm-hmm. There are builds, there are sequential builds forever into infinity. Mm-hmm. And I believe that those are used somehow in, in the artifacts that end up in Artifactory. But there's, they also have a few other things. But there are definitely builds that don't go anywhere because those are failed builds. Right. So yeah, I'm actually really glad you brought that up because that was from a best practice standpoint. I actually call those uh, build numbers and versions uh, ephemeral build numbers and versions. And the reason I say that is, you know, we talked about this a few episodes ago on uh, CI architecture and do you make it so that everything relies on Jenkins and, you know, how do you how do you do that? And, and you should go listen to that episode if you want to hear the discussion on that. But if you tie those build numbers to Jenkins and then for some reason Jenkins goes away or you switch tools, and that's actually a big one that I think is underestimated. A lot of times somebody will hire a new release engineer uh, and they're a small team and, and somebody else was doing release engineering and they want to just change the tool, the CI tool that the organization is using and because they own it now they can or maybe a product moves from one release engineering team to another. The point is is if you tie your builds to a specific tool then that's a recipe for sadness. So whenever I'm doing like build numbers and stuff like that, I actually make that part of the release, the build, the build system from the release side. And that information, I generally actually try to store it, you know, what Seth said, making it part of the information in the repository is super useful because then you can actually tell developers, oh, you want to build build 800? Go pull. We automatically tag all the builds, right? Or, or however yeah. you... Yeah, however you can also... stamp, stamp executables so that like if somebody's like, Hey, I have build eight hundred and you can check to make sure they don't have like a sync problem or something. Exactly. To, you know, yeah. Examine yeah. the info. So it just it's it becomes natural. Yeah. Is so, there, my... so shouldn't there be like some kind of a distinction between builds and releases here? Because it sounds like I mean a build is a build, but I mean the stuff that actually gets dumped into an artifact repository and deployed to production are different. So that's if assuming you're deploying to per you have an environment where you're deploying to production. Um, right. So in, in, in where I'm uh, where I'm more specifically referring to is like while well, so like a game is in development and there is no there is no production layer. Okay, so let me back up. Let me back up actually because that's not actually what I meant. I think okay. what I'm trying to say is that I feel like we aren't making a distinction between builds and labeling. Help me out with that. Right, well, so that's I, I'm referencing that there are environments where. Those are one and the same. There is no difference. Like a build is just the label. There's there's not a the the only release build is the bits you actually ship on the disk. So let me yeah let, that that's a really good example uh, and a good distinction to make, Sasha. So I'm glad you brought it up. I think the difference in environment that that Seth and I are talking about, like in games when you're shipping software, is that. For something where you deploy something in an environment to to S3 and it's a web service or something like that, this is part of the whole kind of continuous delivery thing where every change is deployable, right? But um, in other environments where you're building an ISO or you're building some enterprise product or something like that, and you do have a concept of sort of an official build, that official nightly build, even though you may run it three or four times a day or whatever, that is going to be different from possibly your CI build where you've got something like Jenkins running that. And so Jenkins may have a, a, a build number that's part of the Jenkins UI that it's using to say, I ran a CI build. But that may be different from, for instance, an official build where when QA is talking about, I tested build 800, or the automation tested build 800, that's tied to the source code repository that's labeled in a certain way. And it's different than what Jenkins thinks you know, so in some sense, those two build numbers would actually be different build numbers. Does, so does that distinction make sense? Well, it sounds like um, 
that we are kind of going back and forth about what we mean when we say build and version, I guess. Could so, be, yeah. I mean, well, and that's the thing. It, it, you know, it's different. It's different in different environments, and sure. and that's actually one thing. It's it's interesting. I was having this conversation with the DevOps guys, quote unquote, recently about the distinction that I think exists between client software, you know, software that you go to a website and download that has an installer, versus something that is a service that you upload to S3. But what's interesting is that we we found even in those cases, though, we we still you know the versioning still mattered. But you're right for them. The model was every sing- the the thinking there was we'll do an official build for every change, and so we had to actually talk through that. But you're right, that's totally different than like a game, for instance, where QA is only testing the day they build because that's all they can sort of consume. They're not consuming every single developer check in. Right. Okay. I mean, you and you can be, but it's it's usually the there's no like there are no labels. No, no. This changes like so for online games. There are like builds that are you know release builds, and then. There are builds that are, you know, your your daily development builds. There are a variety of different places at which you can enforce different versioning schemes. Because I know that uh, the the build of a game for like an online one was often different from the version uh, that we actually, you know, the the public facing version. Sure. Um, and so you'd have players trying to like figure out the secret math to like figure out the version number, which is always a fun thing. <laughs> like like oh well, if you take these bits and you subtract them from these, oh, you'll get right. the next. <laughs> and, and and like for one of our executable or from a lot of our executables, we just shoehorned the the perforce change list, and then just put dots arbitrarily in it. Like so for the Windows like MSI installers and stuff. Oh right, that's so, another that's another so they, one that we haven't were, talked about. They were trying to figure out. They were like. One dot three, and it was really just you just broke up whatever the the five digit change list was, and then just plugged it in there. And so people were like, "Oh, they've changed to a new version of the version of the engine because we rolled over to two. And it's right. like, no, that was just the change list. Well, so you know, it's funny though because uh, I've seen that too, and and MSIs are a big one, right? Because I mean, Microsoft has a a spec, a versioning spec that handles like updates, right? And this is right. the classic example where. You've got a part of your infrastructure that rely, like you're you're prompting people to upgrade based on this number, but it's tied to the marketing number, and then it becomes a big problem because in your case you're shoehorning perforce changeless numbers, and that's going to cause certain behaviors you don't want into that thing. Or uh, I've seen it too where they're encoding that that date based build number right for DLLs. You were encoding the date in the D- in in the version number, but then <laughs> but then. The field was only uh, a 16-bit field, and suddenly the date wouldn't fit in the field anymore. So it's like it, it's it, you know it's one of those things. It's it's interesting, and in that and from a best practice standpoint, separating out. Like I said, that's why I try to have the marketing bike shed. And it's like hey, here, guys, you can when you do about whatever, it'll get your number. The users will see your number, and you can do whatever you want with that number. But in terms of like actual upgrade versioning stuff, the, the engineers are dealing with that, so they get the right the behavior that they need. Seth, you know, it's interesting the the thing you mentioned about people trying to deconstruct version numbers. This recently actually just happened with iOS, the new six one release, uh, which I've been watching because I updated to six zero one, and it basically bricked my phone. But so I was waiting for six one to come out. But uh, what was interesting, and there was some speculation. In the tech blogs, they released iOS 6.1 beta 5, I want to say, uh, some beta over the weekend. And the build number is the same as the release build, but the version numbers, the, that version string, 6.1 beta 5 versus 6.1, that changed. So it's exactly what you're talking about, where people oftentimes will like try to deconstruct 
that string to figure out, you know, what's going to happen. People care a lot about those strings, man. It's it's scary. I, I was like, wow, you devoted your life to figuring, understanding the meaning of this build number, and yeah. I... Just kind of winged it, <laughs> or, or it's like, hey, we pushed this build and we didn't stamp with a new version. That's all right. Like, no one's ever going to find out. And then, like, some man obsesses his entire like spends a year trying to figure it out. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. People are strange. Well, yeah, and those you, it's it's gamers, man. You know, yeah, fun fun times. <laughs> Sasha, you were you were going to say something? Talk to me about the difference between build numbers and versioning. I mean, when you say versioning, what do you mean? It sounds like you're still using them interchangeably to me. Um, so a build number is just a thing, as far as I'm concerned, that happens in the family, so to speak. I mean, because generally only you and the people who are integrating with your product care about a build number, but we're also talking about versioning here. And, and So the way that I, I guess I would say that is I think I, I, I like the way that you explained that. Uh, you said build numbers sort of in the family are internal, and that's the main reason that, you know, when I'm working with people setting this stuff up, a lot of times, you know, they don't have build numbers, right? And so that's one of the things we do. And I mentioned earlier, it's sort of the proper noun so that you can actually talk about things. I think build numbers, it's useful to make it possible for users to find them because uh, I worked in situations where there was a build that went out to a partner that wasn't a release build or wasn't supposed to be a release build. And then the partner just decided we want to ship this build. And so 20% of their customers, the partner's customers, got the wrong build. So when bugs were coming in, we needed to ask users, go find the build number. So I think it's important to have that uh, discoverable for users. But I think that's exactly, you're exactly right, is that build numbers are used to talk about, to sort of uh, give a proper name to a you know, set of artifacts and then also a set of source code. A set of things that belong together as well. So here's Exa the thing about this. We actually have started moving towards versioning individual cookbooks for chefs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this is starting to be a community thing in a lot of ways. And when we do CI, with my where I have been working lately, is that's done with a build mm -hmm. in that you when we check in code, whether it's to an individual cookbook or to a project or to a subversion repo, a certain set of criteria triggers a Jenkins build, which mm -hmm. then goes out and does about 30 different things to CI the code change. And so a build is very different from, say, a cookbook version, which is changed based on changes that we make to that code. So, sure. so I, I think so. I think that's that's important. So, when I'm talking about a build, a lot of the time I'm referring to a piece of compiled software. So, so whereas like a, a, a like one of those Jenkins CI jobs isn't actually building anything. When I refer to like a build, it's a it is the build output of a right. of a version number at a given point in time. So that is, I think that's a valuable distinction. And I, I I totally get what you're saying that, uh, earlier. Yeah, and and actually, usually it mines a mines a thing, but the resultant product of the code at that snapshot in time, basically. Right, and some people I think use build numbers to also build a version number for things as well. When right, which I've, necessarily I've production been part stuff. of that. Yeah, I've 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 done that before. Not not my not my choice. I just I have they have a gun to my head and I had to do it. Well, yeah. So that's an I interesting thing. I have an opinion on that. Yeah, I've seen that too. My general experience with it is that it doesn't tend to work out very well. But when I have seen it done, it's actually part of a. So this particular product was like an enterprise product, and the version number had a version number that had like five components to it. So it was like major. Minor, micro, and then something. Uh, yeah, some that sounds like setting to me again, right? Where too many people are trying to like have input on versioning. 
Well, and again, so I, you know what? That version number actually, the way that worked, it, it, once you understood it, it actually made a lot of sense. And there were parts of it that I really liked. So part of the version number actually encoded which iteration of the because they were an agile shop, sure. which iteration the the build was in. And I thought at the first time I saw that, I thought that was kind of dumb, but. At, after a while, it actually, like, in terms of having conversations with QA and developers, yeah. yeah, it actually turned out to be really useful. It was kind of nice. So, because you, you could say things like what they actually encoded was the iteration, the agile iteration for that version, and then also the build of that iteration. Uh, so it was it was a that that turned out to be the way they did their build number and and it, it worked for them but it was one of those things that if you saw the version number up front you'd be like what, what? how does that how, how does yeah how does that make sense the one thing I was going to mention too uh, you know Seth you were talking about this that it represents a set of artifacts and actually I mean when you get to a certain point the build number starts becoming like almost a card catalog right because on the right. source code side you're, it's going to represent a source a you know, set of, of source code that was used to produce a set of bits. That's your artifact stuff. But then if you're actually in case of like games or some product that your QA automation is actually separate from CI because maybe you have a set of acceptance. No, there's, there's no such thing. <laughs> yeah, well, I've seen that where uh, <laughs> it's actually I've seen it too where Bamboo was used for CI and Jenkins was used for functional tests. All right, and that's an example, Sasha, where because the teams were doing different teams were doing those different things, you couldn't use the Jenkins build number for that because they were they were different. But what I was going to say is then those test results then come become part of the information that becomes part of that build, and a lot yeah, of times that's that that behavior really just upsets me, and I really think it's indicative why? of the whole. I don't like that tool. I'm going to go off and make my own tool or use a different tool, and I, I think it really hinders. That's a whole other discussion, right? And that's kind of how yeah. I, I'm having this whole like regret about our discussion we had about rolling your own because I have some real opinions that I didn't have a few months ago. About that. Well, well, so you know that's an interesting point, and actually I think that's that's a good footnote uh, to to end on is that whether or not you think that's a good idea to have different teams using different tools or having you know the roll your own thing, we, certainly we should talk about that. But what I think is relevant to this discussion is. If you assume you need to support that, if you assume that maybe there's a QA team that's on a different continent and you just need, you know, they're going to use, you know, your, your, they're going to use whatever tool they want to use because they're just so far away and that's just the way that things are. If you assume that to be true, versioning is the only way this, versioning and build numbers are the only way that you can actually interface because then instead of trying to match those things up, versioning actually, and that's one of its functions that I think a lot of people underestimate. Uh, when when they're sort of thinking about it, it can be the glue between those teams so that everybody's talking about the same thing and everybody knows what they're talking about. And they don't necessarily have to use the same tools if, for whatever reason, whether it's a good one or a bad one, they don't want to. Well, but you can keep one of the tools to key off of another one too, right? So that they're, they're inter, inter aware of... of build numbers that are being created in things. Exactly. That's how right. you would do it. Totally, yep. But that's what I'm saying is that versioning and having a spec that is used, again, becomes the language with which... Sometimes, sometimes it will, like I've seen that actually work very well in, in cases where you have a contract studio. So somebody who's going to like have oh, their, good point. Have, you know, have their, have yeah. their claws in your code mm -hmm. for a little bit, and they may use some totally different CI because they're working with some crazy 3D thing. Um, and so as long as you have, you're like, hey, guys, here's our versioning scheme. This is when we deliver builds, this, that, and the other. And as long as you have that clear, and they're, and they're built to work in that context as well, 
yeah. and then it becomes really easy yeah. to have to allow the use of different tools maybe because you're embedding a version number in your in the build or in the artifact so that you can always again keep keep things in sync but at the same time allow you know maybe they're working on a piece of code that requires an entirely different build infrastructure uh, maybe yeah, it's a I have console. never seen this turn out well and it usually involves a delivery of overnight code to to a local shop that then has like written instructions on how to how to install the new code and stuff I just oh, we've, we've kept it very very di- at least in my tour it's been very dynamic and it's never been there's never been like shipping code like that it's all been real time even like global like people on the other side of the world um, where we just pick up their extra changes in the middle of the day and crank out a build so it's always I've always seen it in a it work and be able to work that's cool by necessity, like it has to work, or else the game doesn't ship, type of thing. Well, so I think I, I think this conversation was particularly useful. I mean, I, you know, I had a I have a lot of thoughts clearly on versioning, but Sasha, I think a lot of the things you were pointing out again, just because I've worked less than you have in those environments, so seeing the the requirements are a little different, and you know, build number meaning something slightly different uh, is is actually super useful. Uh, I'm curious for our listeners uh, when somebody says build number, what does that mean to you guys? You should uh, tweet us at Ship Show Podcast. Let us know uh, what are your experiences with versioning that have and and haven't hasn't worked. Uh, what press practices have you run into? Um, that would certainly be interesting since uh, this is again one of those those seldom discussed topics. But as we, I think we discovered tonight, there's there's a lot of. Well, I don't know uh, who's seldom of- discussing that. I think a lot of folks are uh, spend a lot of time discussing and arguing about versioning. <laughs> well, then, yeah, we, we should uh, have them join the discussion, and, and we can argue about it uh, on Twitter. All right, all right we're uh, next up, the return of DevOps Dear Abby here on the show. show. All right, welcome back to the Ship Show. So uh, we're it's the return of uh, DevOps, dear Abby, our segment where uh, you get to ask us questions and get to hear what we think about it. So uh, we start tonight with a uh, DevOps, dear Abby, from Dave Thomas. He was responding to the call out that, that we put out for developers who have moved into DevOps, and he says, "I've done maybe thirty to forty percent of my career as a Linux admin, and fifty-five plus percent as a developer, and and the rest in management, etc." But it's become kind of a sore subject for me. I've been doing DevOps activities for years before the term was coined and was constantly getting caught in the middle of the two warring factions. From the beginning, I was completely dissatisfied with the available tools out there, so I, I struck out to build a tool set of my own. So I put my resume out there, and though everyone thought the project was cool, I discovered I had some huge hurdles that made me doubt whether a career in DevOps was realistic. Even if I were to work for cheap or with an employer with deep pockets, my system and skills are not as current. Also, writing apps, I'm excellent in Java, but my Python, Ruby, and Perl skills are getting rustier and rustier, and I doubt I could even pass a coding interview. Is my career as a DevOps tools developer over? Help. Seth, what do you think? Um, I, I think it's where he's looking that matters more. I don't, I, I don't see that that particular experience having any positive or negative effect on... If you it, it it seems localized to, to that environment, but I've seen people with that kind of skill set do very well. So I don't think it's, uh, I don't think it's it maybe it may be just specific to that area. That's what I'd feel like because I I wouldn't have a problem with that skill set finding a job. You know, you know, in okay. a number of different places. Okay, Sasha. Yeah, I think it's it's what you what you mean when you say DevOps tools, which I'm not a fan of that term. But uh, if you're talking about automation, cloud 
scaling, uh, making things for developers to use, like uh, building release engineering tools and things like that. There are a lot of opportunities out there. I mean, I live in Minnesota, and I get emails and calls all the time from like California for people looking for people to do work, whether it's contracting or consulting, or I am always getting full-time job inquiries and things like that. So it really depends on what you think you want to do. And I, when you're not a developer, when you don't have like the one thing that you do, I think it's a lot harder to find the right fit as far as jobs go. And I struggle with that as well. So I just spent six months on a dev tools team and it wasn't necessarily as fun as I thought it would be because I tend to like to architect a little bit more. So it really, it's, it's harder to find what you're looking for. But when you do find a good fit, it's usually pretty awesome. Okay. Yeah, you know, I, I thought this was an interesting uh, post because I identify a lot with it, especially uh, the bit about I've been doing this stuff for years before the term was coined and the bit about constantly getting in the middle of, of two warring factions. So I'm, I'm certainly on the same page with, the, with you there. I think if you're talking about DevOps tools developer, that can be a hard space. So I certainly understand that. I think if you're talking about uh, DevOps tools development, if you're talking about like, I want to write a new Jenkins or a new chef, that can be a pretty, a pretty hard space to get into. Uh, I was talking to someone about uh, Git and Perforce and uh, he was, we were saying that Git has kind of sucked the air out of the room for discussing version control and I think a lot of the current DevOps quote unquote tools that, that's the case there's a lot of mind share behind the popular tools that we talk about all the time so breaking in that space can be a little difficult One, the two bits of advice I would give you is that Python, Ruby uh, Python and Ruby especially and we did a show on release engineering and DevOps languages those are kind of the big ones along with Java Java and Groovy um, are, are big in this space uh, so certainly I think you need to feel comfortable in those languages. A lot of the, I, I'm learning that release engineering and release management are two different things, and I don't think you can be a good release engineer if you don't have a good grasp of at least a couple of those languages. So, you know, you might want to look into uh, de-restifying your knowledge of those languages. But the other thing I think it's really important to, to say is that a large part of the value that release engineers and DevOps engineers bring to the entire engineering team and the business is experience. Because they have experience with what works, what doesn't work. That's where a lot of their value add is. And so just because you, you may have started out as a developer and you did that for 10 years or whatever, and you moved into DevOps, that does I, I certainly think there's a role for people that, that fit that profile and that actually that experience is what uh, makes them more valuable to the team. Uh, just because the functional role of a DevOps and release engineer person does rely so much on experience of, of what did and didn't work in various environments and being able to pattern match to find the best solution. So, our second DevOps Dear Abby is from uh, Solars. He asks, what DevOps thing, conference book, or tool are you most excited to attend, use, read in 2013? So, Seth. Oh, so for me, it's probably, it's, it's, it's an even split between, so I'm going, to, I'm going to two conferences right at this moment. And it's go it's Monitorama or and then a ChefConf. I'm excited about both just because I get to hang out with people that I don't normally get to hang out with, and also talk about you know fun things that are relevant to my interests. Um, but those are probably the the two biggest um, ChefConf just because it's I have a lot of friends there, so it'll be fun. Cool, Sasha. Yeah, ChefConf for me too. Not just because I love Chef, but because we're gonna have a an in person get together for the podcast crew. I'm excited for that. 
We got to get our, our our Manny Petty on too. That's right. <laughs> yes, we're gonna get the podcast Manny Petty. Uh, exactly. It's, so it's much gonna be fun. Wait. Oh, EJ is never gonna come now, right? I can't <laughs> wait. I, I don't know I, I don't know what you guys are talking about. I have no clue. I wasn't involved in that conversation. Oh, man, I'm, I'm oh, totally oh, down Oh, are you still in the Manny Petty closet? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no comment. Um, it'll, it'll be the best podcast ever. <laughs> can yeah. I, we have to do it from the... Yeah, we totally should. Yeah. should we can do some mics like <laughs> mounted over us. We can have some wine. It'll be, it'll be lovely. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, it's going to be so much fun. Yusuf is going to love that. So I have to say I have never been to Chef Comp, and so I am going this year, and uh, I'm One super of excited. Us. One of us. I'm super excited because uh, not because of the Mannies and Petties, but because of Chef Comp. And then the other, there's actually another conference that I'm super looking forward to. It's the International Workshop on Release Engineering, which is a subconference of the international, the 35th International Conference on Software Engineering. And so uh, it's it's uh, they're going to be talking about uh, release engineering specifically. Uh, and so I'm actually looking forward to that. Uh, and that's going to be a bunch of workshops and talks. So yeah, uh, one thing I did want to mention actually. So we on that note, because I I found it very difficult actually to find what conferences and things are going on both in the DevOps and the release engineering space. So we've actually put together a conference calendar. You can find it on the shipshow.com. We'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, to that, and uh, if you have a conference that isn't on there, we're actually just collecting all the data right now. So if you have a conference that is not on there, you should tweet Shipshow Podcast or email crew at theshipshow.com with the information, dates and where it is and all that kind of good stuff, and we will get it on the conference calendar. And then, of course, if you're looking for a fun conference in the DevOps, release engineering, monitoring, cloudy stuff space, go ahead and uh, head on over and check that out. So, from San Francisco, this is Paul Reed signing off. From Minneapolis, this is Sasha signing off. From Austin, Texas, this is Seth signing off. We'll see you all in a couple of weeks. <laughs>